Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 4, Ephesians chapter 4, and the fellows have some Bibles, so if you need a copy of the Scriptures, get their attention and they will get a Bible to you that is marked to the passage we'll be considering in Ephesians 4. I should have mentioned during our prayer time to pray for me as well because my wife and girls have been gone the entire week, they'll be gone for another four days or something. Hopefully they'll come back. They're with her family on the west side of the state. This is the fourth or fifth year that her family has rented a big house on Lake Michigan, and the entire family converges there for as many days as each can stay during that two-week period. And so they get, they're getting a total of 12 days, I think, out of it. I get two. And I think the family voted, voted on that. <laughs> but uh, I'll take what I can get. But I was telling somebody that if nothing matches with regard to my clothes, you'll know why. Uh, Without Kim here, I can barely get dressed or do most other things. Ephesians 4. Our last message in the book of Ephesians was over three months ago. I looked it up. It was on April the 10th. In the meantime, we've had two guest speakers from outside of our congregation, We had two ordinance Sundays on which during the 9.30 worship hour we devoted our time in its entirety to the observance of the Lord's table, communion. We've had Easter and Mother's Day and Father's Day. I did a three-week mini-series called Grace-Centered Living. And then, of course, we've recently heard from uh, Pastor Matt and Brother Zach Hamilton and Brother Larry Castle from our own congregation. And let me just say to you all publicly what I've said to each of those three men, that uh, they were a great encouragement uh, to me and I know to you as well. And so I want to publicly thank them for their labor in God's Word. Now, if you're going to take a break in a book, this is the spot to have done so in the book of Ephesians because that last message back in April brought us to the end of chapter 3. And chapter 3 is also the end of the first of two major sections in the book. Chapters 1 through 3 are all about teaching, teaching regarding who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. And then the final three chapters, chapters 4, 5, and 6, are all about how we should respond based on all that's been said in those first three chapters. Most people want to identify with something that's larger than themselves. And that desire to identify with someone or something larger than ourselves starts early when, as kids, we want to identify with other kids based on some commonality, based on being on the team, having the team uniform, talking about the TV shows or the movies that we have in common that we like. Negatively, we emphasize what we think makes us cooler than the people who are not in our group. If you're not in, you want desperately to be in. You want to belong. You want to identify with a group that's larger than yourself. When we grow older, we don't necessarily grow out of that. Colleges and clubs and secret societies like the Masons, they all cater to adults' desires to be with the group, to be part of something larger than just ourselves. If the privilege of being in is that important to us, then whatever we have to do is worth it. If the privilege of being in, whatever the group is, is that important to us, then whatever we have to do in order to get in and stay in is worth it. So is there a hazing ritual for the college fraternity? Okay. Is it dangerous? Sure. But it's worth it. Is that country club membership a king's ransom? Yeah. But it's worth it to be in, we think. Is the political campaign that I volunteered for many long hours with no pay? Sure, but it's worth it to be part of my candidate's larger cause. Does it take many hours of 
my time to keep up with my favorite sports team, to go to the games and watch on TV and to listen on radio. Yeah, but it's worth it. To the person who's excited about, for instance, the Tigers, there's nothing like talking with others who are just as enthusiastic. And if you have any t-shirt or a hat or a button or some public way to identify you with a sports team or a favorite musician or the concert you attended. You do it to be identified by others and to identify with others. And all the time and all the money and all the chatter is worth it because you deem it a privilege to belong. Now take a look at chapter 4 and verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. In verse 1, this, this word worthy, we get our, we, you might associate it with the word worth. It's a term of a value. It's something that, to which we assign weight. And so it's saying to live in a way that accurately shows the value of your calling. And the one who wrote that verse, when he says, I urge you to live a life that shows the value of your calling, is saying that there is someone so valuable to me. And most of you know a fellow named Paul wrote this. There's someone so valuable to me, Paul, that I'm willing, notice the first line, as a prisoner for the Lord. There is someone so valuable to me that I'm willing to be in prison for him. Is it dark and lonely and scary and unjust that I'm here? And is it just an overall lousy experience? Yeah. But he's worth it. And the question then is, what has made it worth it? Why is it so great to belong that even the cost of prison is not too high? Well, the answer to that question is attached to one little word in verse 1 of chapter 4. It's the word, then, as a prisoner for the Lord then. It's saying, since all this stuff in chapters 1 through 3 is true, then it's worth it to even be a prisoner. And it's worth it to do the things that I am now going to tell you that a Christian does if he or she values Jesus. In these next three chapters, I'm going to give you a number of commands, things that you're to do things that you're to do in your own life, things that you're to do in your corporate life with each other. And they are all, every one of them, worth it because of all that we have seen in chapters 1 through 3. What we're told to do in the beginning of chapter 4, then, is inextricably linked to what we were told in chapters 1 through 3. And that's why I say in your outline, and I encourage you to take a look at the outline that was inserted in your program. And I say in that very first point in your outline, Christian living follows Christian identity. Christian living, living as a Christian, living a life that shows the worth, the value of Jesus Living that life always flows from, it always follows from, a firm understanding of who we are in Jesus. Christian living follows Christian identity. If we're going to understand why we should do the things that are commanded in these next three chapters, we have to have a firm grasp on whose we are and to what we belong. So that little word in verse 1, then, since all these things in chapters 1 through 3 are true, that requires that we know and we grasp what was taught there. And since it's been three and a half months 
we need to review that. In fact, we may not get much past this first point in the outline. And that's okay, then. We will do points two through four, if necessary, next week. What is taught in chapters one through three that make it worthy to obey Christ are going to be the focus of our attention under this first point. What is it that is described there that makes it worth obeying Christ and even being willing to suffer for Him? Well, it all begins with God, as does the entire Bible, you'll remember. In the beginning, God created. And Paul, who wrote this letter, begins his explanation of what makes it worth it, where you have to start all the time. He does that with God. The Bible begins with God, and each individual book in the Bible is about God and is attached to the unfolding drama that God is carrying out in His world. And that's why this series in the book of Ephesians, I've titled the overall series, Your Place in God's Plan. Now why? Because those first three chapters set everything that you're to be about and I'm to be about and that we are to do in the context of God and His unfolding plan for us. Look back at chapter 1 and verse 3. Chapter 1 and verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. You see, it starts at the very beginning, after the first two verses of introduction, now with God. And we're going to set the entire context of where you fit in and why it's worth it for you to do the stuff that's commanded in chapters 4 through 6. We're going to set that in the context of God and God's plan. And so let's spend some time, friends, reminding ourselves of who this God is. If we're going to live a life that is worthy of our calling, chapter 4 and verse 1, that shows the value of all that was described in these first three chapters, then we're going to have to have a firm grasp of who this God is. That is the beginning of it all. The Bible tells us we can learn some things about this God through what He has done, through what He has made. The Bible says, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen, understood from what has been made. And so let's just take a little bit of time to just step back early in the morning or fairly early in the morning as it is, tired though you are. Is everyone cooling down okay? Not really? The air conditioning kicks on when we finish, (laughs) I think. But do your best. And let's just step back and let's just think about this God and who He is as our Creator. R.C. Sproul said this, Men are never duly touched and impressed with a conviction of their insignificance until they've contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. You think about the majesty of this God who in the beginning created. With the advent of the, or the invention of the Hubble telescope, we're able to see more than we've ever been able to see into space. You all know that we are part of the Milky Way galaxy. And the Milky Way galaxy alone has, has billions of stars. And yet the Milky Way galaxy is one galaxy among 356 billion, not stars, not planets, galaxies. And that's a conservative estimate. And the Bible tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. And the skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. 
Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun. A.W. Tozer said this. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important statement about us. Worship is, he says, either pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. And for this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God Himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. What do you conceive God to be like? How big is your God? Because you always, we always live out of some sense of identity, and that identity begins, as does Ephesians 1, as does Genesis 1, with God. So how do you think about God? How big is your God? And you know, you made statements about that without saying anything this past week. How much time did you spend this past week worrying? How big is your God? How much time did you spend this week focusing on much lesser things? Things that, frankly, as we're going to see in our In the Pursuit of Happiness series, Jesus doesn't really care about in the grand scheme. But we care a lot about because our God and His plan are not big enough for us. How many of us have refused to get right a relationship that has been broken for years because it's too hard? And yet the question really is, how big is your God? Can your God do this? Is your God worth the pain of going through the difficulty of perhaps humbling ourselves or approaching someone that may not be receptive? One author said this, we're programmed to focus on what we don't have. We're bombarded multiple times throughout the day with what we need to buy that's going to make us feel happier or sexier or more at peace. And this dissatisfaction transfers over to our thinking about God. And then he says this, we forget that we already have everything we need in Him. You see, we always act out of a sense of identity. And whether we obey is a question of how we see God. How big is your God? This God mentioned in chapter 1 and verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Let me review for you what this God is like, according to the Bible. And I'm going to give you some of these characteristics They're churchy words that many of us are familiar with, but we can be very glib about them. So it's important for us to understand who this God is, on whom our identity is based. What is this God like? He is holy. You remember Isaiah's famous vision of God on his throne? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. And the whole earth is full of His glory. You have these these seraphim that are flying around the, the throne of God and they are calling to one another, Holy, Holy, Holy. And in Hebrew, the language in which the first part of your Bible was written, there are no comparative or superlative forms. You know what I mean by that? And so we say, we say something's good or something is better or something is best, but they don't have that. And so when they want to show something is the absolute best, they simply repeat it. And so God is, the, is, is not just holy or holier compared to something or someone else. He's the holiest, but how do they say that? Holy, holy, holy is our God. What does that mean? 
The word holy means apart. It means separate, different. Hear this, friends. If you're going to understand why it's worth it, why God is valuable enough, why Christ is valuable enough for us to do the things He tells us to do, even the hard things, then you have to understand this God is different. He is set apart from His creation. And so you do not look at whether or not it's worth doing what God has said by saying, I wonder how it'll turn out. God is not confined to this realm. He is separate and He's apart and He can do it and He can work it out and He always does for those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. Why? He is holy. Apart. Different. He is, the Bible teaches, eternal as well. He's not confined to time. We think that what we're going through is going to last forever. But we are truly, as we sing, a moment. The Bible says our life is as a vapor, here today, gone tomorrow. But the Bible says of God, You, O Lord, sit enthroned forever. Your renown endures through all generations. And through all of that, you remain the same, and your years will never end. There's a sense in which you and I are eternal as spiritual beings. That is, we will not have an end. We will live forever somewhere. But we are not eternal in the sense that God is, because God not only has no end, God had no beginning as well. God is eternal. And compared then to God, what you are going through, our little tiny slice of time, when compared to eternity, is something that God has, as we will see, planned and in which He is working directly to accomplish His purpose in our lives. This God that is valuable enough for us to do the hard things is holy and He's eternal. Let me give you some other things that He is. He is omniscient, forgive the big word, means He knows everything. God has all knowledge. Sometimes I say to folks when I'm teaching on God's omniscience, has it ever occurred to you that it has never occurred to God? Nothing has ever occurred to God. God has never learned anything. Now that would affect your prayer life if you really do believe that. You remember Jesus, Jesus saying in Matthew 6, He already knows what you need before you ask. He already knows that. So when I go to God and pray, I'm praying to an omniscient God who already knows so I don't have to inform him, you know, it's bad down here. You know, you might be dealing with, you know, a hurricane or a tsunami or something, but could you just turn your attention over here for a little bit? God is omniscient. He knows all things simultaneously, intuitively, exhaustively. And that's why in Psalm number 139, David wrote of the omniscience of God, that there's no place I can go, no place I can hide from the knowledge of God. Even before I was born, you knew me when I was in my, my mother's womb, says David. And the writer of Hebrews says this about him. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He's holy. He's eternal. He's omniscient. Just a few more. This God is omnipotent. Omni means all. Potent means powerful. He's omniscient, omniscience, all knowledge. Omnipotent, He is all powerful. He has all power. There's no one or no thing that can restrain the power of the true and living God. Does that affect how you live? Does that affect how valuable He is so that then, because of this, we live a life that shows the value of the calling that we've received? He's shown this omnipotence, His complete power, most majestically in creation itself. And the Bible says of God the Son, Jesus Christ, by Him were all things created, all things being, things in heaven and on earth, invisible and invisible, and thrones and powers and rulers and authorities, they were created by Him 
and for him. So our God, who is valuable enough for us to live as he commands, is a God who is holy and eternal and omniscient and omnipotent. And just two more. And he's sovereign as well. That is, he not only has all knowledge and all power, but he is sovereign, meaning he has all authority. He is authorized to do as he pleases. You see, the rest of us derive authority. If we have any position of authority, we derive that authority. But God does not derive his authority. He has authority because he is authorized by virtue of being God and being our creator. And so the Bible says then of this sovereign, authoritative God, our God is in heaven and he does whatever pleases him. And so is there any earthly power, any circumstance over which God does not have this authority, friends? Any? And if the answer is no, there is no such person or no such circumstance, then it follows that I should do what this God says. Daniel tells us, He, God, does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back His hand or say to Him, What have you done? He's holy and eternal and omniscient, and omnipotent, and He is sovereign. And this God is also, and I could list many more, but this God is also a just God. That is, He will always do what is right. You say, well, that's a good thing, because if you just leave it at He's omnipotent, and He's omniscient, and He's sovereign, now we have a dictator, to be sure. But this is a dictator who will always do what is right. But here's the problem for us with the fact that God will always do what's right. That means he must, not just he will, he has to, he must then punish wrongdoing. Otherwise, he would not be just. And so this God is just, and this God says, you know, there are some things I hate. For instance, I hate pride and arrogance. That's what God says. Ever been prideful? I have, for sure. And so have you. And that one thing places us before the bar of a just, righteous God. And of course, there are many other things that can be added to the list of Ken and can be added to your list as well. And so should I do these things that chapter 4 through 6 of Ephesians tells me to do? Well, is he valuable enough? Is he worth it? That depends on who he is. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And this is the God who is holy and eternal and omniscient and omnipotent and sovereign and just. The Bible gives us a few glimpses of this God. One is in Revelation chapter 4, at the end of your Bible. You don't need to turn there now. You're welcome to if you want. But in John chapter 4, God draws the curtain, as it were, pulls it back to give John the Apostle who wrote that book a glimpse of his, God's, majesty. And there, John describes a throne. And as he describes the throne, he can only describe the one who is on the throne in terms of jasper and carnelian. And the Bible says that there's a rainbow resembling an, an emerald that encircled the throne. And then surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders, and they were dressed in white, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from this throne, John says, there were flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. They're the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And it goes on to talk about there being angels there who are saying, holy, holy, holy 
just like Isaiah said back in Isaiah chapter, chapter 6. And it tells us that the 24 elders bowed down and worshipped at the throne of God. And they cast their crowns before his feet. How big is your God? Is your God worth? Is he valuable enough? You doing what he says in chapters 4 through 6. And then we have that famous scene that I've alluded to. In Isaiah chapter 6, in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1, the prophet Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And he says, I saw the Lord on his throne. John had said, I had this thing that I can only describe as jasmine and carnelian and But Isaiah had said, I saw the Lord on his throne. And the seraphs were flying and calling to one another, holy, holy, holy. The train of his robe, that is the the hem of his robe, filled the temple. There was noise just like John saw in Revelation chapter 4. This majestic scene. But here's one thing that Isaiah tells us that John didn't. And there's John... Isaiah's reaction to what he saw. Do you remember his reaction? Woe is me. I, Isaiah, am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. There's no way that I should be in the presence of this holy, majestic God. And yet he has deigned to allow me to have this glimpse of who he is. I am not worthy. You see, friends, R.C. Sproul was right. We never get a view of our own insignificance until we first realize the majesty of God. Who are you? Or who am I to tell God I will pick and I will choose the things that I will obey from you? Do you recognize that we are insignificant when compared to the all-significant, majestic God? And since then, these things are true. Live a life that shows the value of the calling that you have received. This God needs no one or no thing. Do you all know that? He needs no one. He needs nothing. So I want to get to why he created us to begin with. And why are we here? I mean, if he's that majestic, man, and he has got it all in his hand, and he is all-powerful and all-knowing, and he's sovereign, and he doesn't have to ask, ask anybody's permission for anything he does. And if he's completely independent of his creation, as Paul said to some Athenian philosophers in Athens, Greece, 2,000 years ago, he said... He is not served in temples made by human hands as though he needed anything. For he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Acts chapter 17. And so why did God create us? Hear this. God did not create. And God has not done his work in your life because he needed something. He did not make this world and make humanity because he was lonely. God has never, ever been lonely. He has throughout eternity had the fellowship of the three members of the triune God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 1 of Ephesians, In verse 3, we're told of the Father. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we're reminded of the second person, God the Son of the Trinity. In verses 3 through 12, in fact, Christ is referred to ten times in verses 3 through 12 of Ephesians chapter 1. And then in verses 13 and 14... We're told about the work of the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit. 
all three members of the one God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, at work in His plan, and all of them having had each other for eternity to fellowship. So God didn't create because He was lonely. Why did He create? The best way for me to describe this is this. He didn't create because he was lonely. He created to extend his glory. Now, do you know what I mean when I say extend his glory? <laughs> he made people in his image to extend his character, to have mirrors that he would look at and see himself in those mirrors. He's already self-contained. He already has all that he needs. God does not need anything. The only thing that God needs is to be glorified. And he made us to glorify him, to extend his glory. And that's why chapter 1, verses 6 and 12, tell us that this is all about the praise of his glory. And that's why in chapter 1, verses 5 and 11, it says that this entire plan is for his pleasure and according to his will. And so who is this God that is worthy, that is worth? It's the God that I've just in a very feeble way described in terms of his character qualities. And so much could be said and so much will be said in eternity. Now think in contrast to that of you and me. This is our God. This is what he is like. This is why he is valuable enough, he is worthy enough for us to do what he says. But now think in contrast to him, think about who we are. There have been, depending on how long you think the earth has been around and who you listen to, 45 to 125 billion people that have ever lived. And of all the 6 billion people that live on the earth right now, in 50 years, give or take a few decades, every last one will be forgotten. And yet this God takes these otherwise insignificant beings, and in fact completely insignificant, apart from our relationship to Him, completely insignificant, and He creates them in a majestic way, in His image, with capacities to create and to think and to do and to feel. And he's even created the rest of the animal kingdom in marvelous and intricate ways. Did you know that a caterpillar has 228 separate and distinct muscles in his head? A caterpillar. The average elm tree has six million leaves. Your heart can pump with enough power to shoot blood 30 feet. Now, don't try this at home. Right. God didn't have to, but God, this God, this creative God, created these things with all of this diversity and all of this majesty, God did not have to create hundreds of varieties of bananas. But he did. Or 3,000 species of tree within a one square mile section of the Amazon forest. Spiders can turn out three kinds of silk. And they can put out 60 feet of silk in an hour. Now, most of us hate spiders, but that's still pretty impressive. Now, with all of that, this majestic God who needs nothing, and you look at all that he has done to extend his glory in his world, and then add to that what chapter 2 of Ephesians tells us about us. What does Ephesians 2 tell us? Verse 1. And as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. And then goes on to describe in chapter 2, through verse 3, 
that we all were by nature objects of wrath. All of us. So in contrast to this holy and eternal and omniscient and omnipotent and sovereign and just and independent God, there's insignificant, but not only insignificant, but now sinful us. And enter the mercy of God. Verse 4 of Ephesians 2. But God who is rich in mercy, has made you alive, verse 5, when you were dead, and then Paul adds, it is by grace you have been saved. The only way for us to be rescued, the only way for us to be delivered, the only way for us to be saved is by His grace and His mercy. When we see God in His majesty now, friends, it can be inspiring and awesome, but it can also be intimidating. So intimidating that we can be afraid of Him. And add to that now our sinful character, our sinful character, mine and yours, as cataloged in chapter 2 and throughout Scripture. And then it's all the more amazing that this God who is high and lifted up loves me. Karl Barth is a famous, depending on how much reading you've done of him, perhaps infamous theologian, but a very learned scholarly man. He was asked, what's the most profound truth you've ever learned? He said, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. This God loves me. He loves me. And He chose me. Chapter 1 says. Chapter 1 and verse 4. You all remember? He chose us in Him to be adopted as His sons. He loves me and chose me and has adopted me into His family. And He has changed me and is changing me. And chapter, the end of chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, all the way down to verse 22, Paul tells us that this God, who is all the things that the Bible describes and that I've rehearsed here, and these people, you and me, are all the things that he says at the beginning of chapter 2. And yet this God, in verses 11 through 22, has taken these people who have rebelled against him in their sin, and he has brought them together and unified them as one body in Jesus Christ. He tells us there that he's broken down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. And He is creating this new humanity, this new community, this new thing called the church. And He lets you and lets me be a part of that. Paul is so amazed at what he's just written in those first two chapters that when he comes to chapter 3 and verse 1, he says there, I kneel before the Father. And then he stops. <laughs> and if you've got an NIV, there's a dash there. And he says, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace. And he says, Before I tell you about me kneeling before the Father, which he's going to pick up again down in verse 14 of chapter 3, notice how it starts. I kneel before the Father, verse 14, same way as verse 1. But in between, in verses 2 through 13 of Ephesians 3, he says, I've got to one more time rehearse for you all what's going on here. <laughs> this majestic God has taken these otherwise insignificant people and he has created one new body, this thing called the church. And he says there in verse 10, verse 10 of chapter 3, his, God's intent was that now, through the church. You all see it? 
His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. And then he goes on to list the powers and the authorities. And it goes on to tell us that the angels look at this and go, I can't believe it. What this God has done for you blows the mind of the angels. The angels have been watching this whole drama unfold, this whole plan of God unfold. They were there at creation. Job chapter 38 and verse 7 tells us the morning stars sang together when you created the, created the world. They saw God create. They saw his, his power, His omnipotence. And then they saw these beings. They saw Adam and Eve violate His commands. And then they saw this God execute His plan. His plan that goes back to when? Eternity. To send God the Son to die for you and for me. And the angels are watching all of this and they watch God the Son on the cross. God has come and He is now dying. The God who made these people, the God who made them to extend His majesty and His glory and they've rebelled and they deserve to be punished forever and now God is being punished on their behalf. And then God calls them at a point in time, out of the world and to himself. And they come to Christ, and the Holy Spirit takes residence in them so that they now have a relationship with this God that had been broken because of our rebellion, all made possible because God the Son has come to do what we could not do for ourselves. And the angels go, are you kidding me? And then God forms this new community, this new humanity, this thing called the church, and He brings together mortal enemies. <laughs> and He breaks down every artificial barrier of race and class and economics. And Jew and Gentile are one in Christ. And He ends chapters 1 through 3 with verses 14 through 21. For this reason, I kneel before the Father. He praises Him for His love. And He prays that the Ephesians and the Woodhavians would know how deep and how wide and how long is the love of Christ. Verse 20, And to Him who is able to do more than we can ask or imagine, verse 21, To Him be glory in the church throughout all generations. Amen. And then chapter 4, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life that shows the value of the calling that you've received. Now, friends, over these next few weeks, then, we're going to see what we've been called to do. And as we do, I hope you will remember what we've said in this message. Because every last bit of what is said to us in chapters 4 through 6 is all based upon the unfolding drama of redemption that our God is unfolding and that He allows us to participate in. Is your God big enough? Is your God valuable enough? Is your God worthy enough for you to obey Him? We're going to pray in just a moment. But I want to tell you the good news very quickly. I mean, I already have, but I'll just summarize it very quickly. The good news is that this God makes His mercy available to you now. And what God the Son did by coming to earth in dying to pay the penalty for your sin and living the life you should have lived and that I should have lived, He offers that to you now. 
And so you can begin a relationship with God from whom you have been separated because of your sin, as I was separated because of my sin. But God has brought me to himself through Jesus Christ. And that happens when I believe that I'm separated from God. And I see it in how messed up I am and it is. I see it in my sin. I'm separated from God. And I believe that God the Son has paid the penalty for my sin that I deserve. I believe that he never sinned. He lived an absolutely perfect life of righteousness. And I ask him to rescue me, to save me. I want to follow you. And so this is what you do. You realize who you are. You recognize what Christ did. Repent means I want to follow you, Lord, with my life. He'll empower you to do that. You can't do it on your own. He'll empower you to do that. And you receive Christ into your life. You can do that right now in this sacred moment. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for this reminder, this precious reminder of who you are. You are the creator. You are above your creation. You are worthy of our lives. You are worthy of all of our praise. You will be worthy throughout eternity. Help us, Lord, to show that you are worth, that you are valuable by the way that we are willing to live consistent with the calling that we have received. Your apostle was willing to go to prison and gladly so because you're worth it. Help us to be proud to identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us as we boast to boast only in the Lord and what He has done for us and has brought us into. I pray that over these next many weeks as we see what you have instructed us to do, what you command us to do, that we will always remember you're big enough, you are valuable enough for us to obey you. I pray right now that you would draw some to yourself, out of the world and to yourself in this sacred moment, that there are some right now from their heart to you who are asking you to deliver, to rescue them. You have said, you have promised in your word, he who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But Lord, it's your mercy who saves. I can't do it. And so I ask you to touch the heart of some who are here who have never come to you through the Lord Jesus Christ and rescue them and begin your reclamation project from this point further in their lives. To your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.